0: Our reading of scripture today is going to be from Colossians chapter 2. Surprise, surprise, as we're working through the book of Colossians. Uh, Whenever we read through or or study through a book, one thing that we are always in danger of is losing context. Where are we in the book? What has happened so far? What is happening? What's about to happen? So in light of that, Pastor Nate has asked us to read through Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So if you would... Colossians chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge.
1: Kids who are normally in junior church will remain in the worship service this morning. As we turn to the word of God this morning, I do have a story to tell you from my childhood. When I was a young boy, I don't know exactly how old, I'm guessing probably around six years old, uh, my family, we lived in Como Park, uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, which has a beautiful lake, great trails, a really cool waterfall not that far from my house. And we would go as a family, and we would walk down to the waterfall. There's a pavilion there, you could have a meal if you wanted to. You could take paddle boats out on the water and I just loved and and thoroughly enjoyed my time uh, living in Como Park and growing up in Como Park. Well, of course, as a young boy, the way I viewed the world is we we went down to the park when we wanted to, we went around the lake when we wanted to, and I never really had a real consciousness that we were doing that because I was with my parents at the time. And so one day, I was with a friend of mine who was in town for the summer. He was the grandson of one of our neighbors. And I, I told him, I said, hey, uh, I'm tired of playing just around at our houses. Let's go down to the lake or, or go down to the trails or maybe play in the waterfall and have a good time. And I, like I said, I was maybe six years old. He was like a year, maybe two years younger than I was, so this whole conversation happened at a lower level of language probably. Um, But I convinced him that this was a good idea. And not thinking about there being a difference between whether we had parents or didn't have parents, uh, we wandered on down to the uh, park and enjoyed a good old afternoon. That afternoon turned into a few hours, turned into the evening, and about the time that I started thinking, you know, I'm kind of hungry. I think I would like some dinner. I said, you know, Kai, maybe we should, maybe we should go home. And he said, yeah, that's, that's probably a good idea. He again, a much lower level of language, probably. So we head home only to see five, ten, who knows, at a six-year-old's uh, recollection of events, but different police cars blaring in front of the house, people out interviewing uh, the neighbors, And I walk up to the house and I say, hey mom, what's for dinner? And she is is happy to see me, I'm sure, but perhaps uh, maybe a little bit more angry at the time. But that was nothing compared to how our neighbor felt about losing her grandson who was in town for the summer. And she, of course, I think let him have it. I'm not sure we played together the rest of the summer uh, because of the influence that I apparently had on him the difference between me going down to the lake and going down to the waterfall with my parents and me going down by myself or with my friend who was younger than I was is a difference in worldview. Not recognizing that there was a change between those two circumstances was a failure on my part to recognize the realities of what was actually happening when I was going down with my family. I thought the world was my playground at the time. If I could go there at one time, I could go there at another time. And yet that was actually not the truth. Perhaps you had a a particular or unique worldview as a child, and as you grew up, you learned that things were actually different than the way that you viewed them. Paul says in the first three verses of this chapter that he has been praying For the Colossian believers, specifically that their unity as a church would grow around Christ. He is the source of all wisdom. You see, in verses 4 and 5, he tells them that he doesn't want them to be led astray. He wants their faith to be firm. He wants them, and notice in verses 4 and 5, he tells them he doesn't want them to be led astray at all. In verse, verses 6 and 7, which Pastor Will preached on last week, Paul says that as they have received Christ and have been taught Christ, they must be further established in him. Paul wants them not just to remain at the level of knowledge and growth in Christ that they're at. He wants them to dig down deep to build deeper roots in Christ who is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. We can tell by a casual reading of these verses that Paul is very concerned that they grow in their faith and knowledge of Christ so that they will not be shaken by false teachers and false teaching. So as we come to our text this morning, verses 8 through 10, keep in mind Paul's heartbeat for these people whom he loves and for whom he is extremely concerned. Now this isn't a normal sermon in the sense that I don't have uh, three points in a poem. (laughs) Paul really only has one main point for the Colossians here. and So we will draw one major point from this passage as well. And I will admit to you that I really struggled through this passage this week as I studied. There are several rare and unique words that you just don't see in other parts of the New Testament. And I take it very seriously when I preach that I don't want to say something that God didn't intend to be communicated through his word. But in the end, even though these verses can be a little bit challenging to understand, because of our limited knowledge of the false teaching that the Colossian believers were facing... I am convinced that these verses are easy for us to apply in our present context here in 2019. So join with me, let's dive together and turn our attention to verse 8. Paul writes this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, Paul's first words to the Colossians are, beware, watch out, be on the lookout. Paul wants the Colossians to be on high alert for an impending threat that is hovering over their church. Now, what threat is that? Notice that he says he doesn't want anyone to take them captive. Now, this word literally means to be carried off as plunder in war. Paul is concerned that the Colossians will be caught off guard and carried away like the spoils in war. Now, how could this happen? These believers have been growing in their faith and they're becoming more established and rooted in their knowledge of Christ. And remember, our theme this year is growing together. Right? We've been trying to focus upon growing in our unity around the gospel and around Jesus Christ. That's why we've been focusing on growth groups and our growth seminars and, and focusing on our opportunities to grow in a deep knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ together as a congregation and in small groups. So how could we be taken captive just as Paul has warned as a possibility for these Colossians? Notice that Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Now, everybody who goes to college likes to make fun of the philosophy majors, and they just love this verse here. Don't be taken captive by philosophy. major in something that counts, right? Um, But that's actually not what Paul's talking about here. This word could use a little bit of explanation. Uh, We tend to use the word philosophy in a much more narrow sense than they would have in their time. Uh, you know, the the infinite source of all dictionary knowledge, dictionary.com, defines philosophy as the rational investigation of the truths and principles of being, knowledge, or conduct. Well, in the language in context of this letter, Paul simply means any system of thought, right? A worldview, a way of looking at things a lens through which you see all of your life and all of your life's circumstances. That's really what Paul's talking about here. Depending on your Bible translation, uh, there are a lot of different ways that this word has been translated. And for the purpose of our outline this morning, I've stated Paul's warning as this. Don't be carried away captive by human wisdom. And any time in this message that we say human wisdom... We're talking about philosophy. We're talking about a worldview. We're talking about a lens through which you view your life. We're using these all as synonymous terms because that's what Paul's talking about here in this verse. I don't think we often recognize that we live in a war. No, I'm not talking about Republicans versus Democrats. I'm not talking about Ohio State versus Michigan. I'm not even talking about those who prefer to have their toilet paper roll installed over versus those who like it installed under. In fact, I'm not even sure there are still any people who still like it installed under. It's just an old position. What I mean is that what we see is not all there is in life. There is a spiritual battle raging over the souls of men and over who will receive ultimate glory in this life. Satan would love for us to be oblivious to this conflict, but God warns us several times in his word to be aware that there is a battle going on around us that we cannot see. In fact, the book of Job attests to this very battle that is raging beyond our human comprehension. And we must be careful that we are not taken captive in this war by human wisdom, by philosophy, by a way of viewing the world that contradicts the wisdom revealed to us in God's word. You see, one of Satan's greatest strategies against us doesn't involve coming at us full on with all of his forces so that we see him coming. No. He doesn't usually fight in obvious attacks. He uses much more subtle weapons, like getting us to doubt God's promises or his words, or getting us to forget that we're even at war in the first place. Paul's point here is not that philosophy is a bad thing, or that having a philosophy about marriage or money or metaphysics is wrong. His point is that we can be caught up in worldviews that are harmful and will hamper our effectiveness for Christ in this life. Throughout the rest of verse 8, Paul describes the kind of philosophy or worldview that he is concerned about by using at least four qualifiers. And I want us to look at these so that we can see both what a wrong worldview looks like and why having a wrong worldview is harmful. So first, Paul warns the Colossians not to be taken captive by human wisdom because it's hollow and deceitful. Now, I found in my study that most of the linguists that I consulted took these words, empty deceit, to be directly modifying the kind of philosophy by which the Colossians are in danger of being uh, taken captive. In other words, you need to be wary of human wisdom because it's empty. It's hollow. It may look substantial. It may sound really good. It might even sound spiritual because it contains some kind of biblical terminology or phrases in it. But in its sum total, it's completely hollow. It has no lasting substance. And that's how it deceives us, folks. Human wisdom looks good, It sounds good, and we think it must be good, and so we adopt it as our own worldview or mindset, and at that point, it has deceived us into thinking that it's positive, even while it's in the process of carrying us off as captives in war. Let me ask you something. Have you ever heard anyone say that God just wants you to be happy? He just wants you to be happy. You know, saying like this seems harmless enough at first glance. Certainly the Bible says that God wants what's best for us, right? Romans 8.28 tells us that God works all things together for good for those who love God, right? If we love God, he'll make us happy. It's amazing the amount of sin that people have justified by believing that God just wants them to be happy. I'm not happy with my spouse. You know, God, God wants me to be happy, and my wife just doesn't make me happy anymore. So I'll leave her for someone who understands me better. I mean, I, I must have just made a mistake when I married her, and since God really just wants me to be happy, I'm sure he'll be fine with me leaving my wife for someone else. Or this one. I've had a really rough week, Nothing went the way that I wanted it to. I really deserve some new clothes. Or a new toy. Whatever that may be. Or a vacation. I know I can't afford it, but God wants me to be happy, right? He doesn't mind if I medicate my life by buying stuff, right? He just wants me to be happy. Or... My church doesn't sing the songs that I want to sing. I like the music better at this church over here. God doesn't really care which church I go to as long as I'm going somewhere, right? And if he wants me to be happy, well, I'll just stop going to this church and go somewhere where my needs are met. I challenge us to look at the history of the New Testament church. Here's uh, Paul with a... his buddies, and then one day after a service someone says, Paul, we just don't really like the music here in Ephesus, we're going to go over to Colossae and go to church there instead. I mean, it, just, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? We can justify doing just about anything if we believe that fundamentally God really just wants us to be happy. How about this? Have you ever heard someone say, I can't help the way that I am? or I was born this way, God made me this way, so it can't be wrong. If you pay attention to the common rationale for why a homosexual lifestyle is permissible, even from a biblical worldview, this one is used frequently. God created me with homosexual desires. If it were wrong, then why did he make me this way? God must be a monster if he created me with these desires and doesn't want me to fulfill them. And it's amazing, this one really trips up a lot of Christians. But we start to see through the false veneer of this mindset when we replace the homosexual desires with other sins. God made me an angry person with an angry part. So he wants me to exercise my anger on other people, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't have made me angry. God made me a proud person. He wants me to tell other people how much better I am than they are, right? I like to steal things. I was made that way. I was born with a desire to steal. If God made me this way, he's fine with me stealing things, right? Now, see, folks, God created man, like the rest of his creation, as perfect. It wasn't until the fall that the human race took on a sin nature and now is plagued with a vast array of sinful desires. Yes, we desire to steal. Yes, we desire to be proud. And yes, we desire to fornicate with people to whom we aren't married. But God has redeemed us from our sin to fight against our sinful lusts, not to accept them, and instead to live in righteousness, not to explain our sins based on our own creation. We don't know exactly the kind of human wisdom to which Paul is referring in his letter to the Colossians, but he makes it clear that it's hollow and that it deceives when you hear human wisdom asserted on Facebook and it looks good and it sounds kind of spiritual and they use a little bit of biblical terminology, don't just absorb it into your worldview. Hold it up to the scripture and take the time to examine it. Don't be taken captive by Satan's lies. Notice next, Paul warns the Colossians not to be taken captive by human wisdom because it originates in man. Notice the specific words that Paul uses, according to human tradition. Now it appears that Paul is making a contrast between the tradition that the Colossians had received in verse 6 that Pastor Will talked about last week, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, that's a tradition received, and it originates from God, He's making a comparison or a contrast between that and the false teacher's philosophy, which depended on human tradition. And anytime I read that word tradition used this way, it just harkens back to what Jesus addressed with the Jewish leaders when they held up their own spiritual traditions, like not eating uh, without their ceremonial washing of hands or not supporting their aging parents because they claimed that they gave that money to God. They said that was their traditions. And it's because of this that it's led a lot of scholars to speculate that the false teachers that Paul is opposing in this letter are proposing some type of Jewish heresy or worldview. Again, we can't know for certain the exact nature of the false teaching. But it's clear that its origin is from man rather than God. I'm sure to them they thought, this sounds kind of good. It has some biblical words to it. And yet it originated in man, not in God. You know, today it's popular for people to believe that if you love God and you're obedient to him, he's going to bless you with money. If you do the right things and you love God, he's going to heal you of all your problems. He's going to make you well. People who believe this prosperity gospel say that If you don't have very much money, and if you're sick, you must not have very much faith. Because if you have enough faith, you'll be blessed materially. You know, there are several false teachers that have made a living promoting this prosperity gospel. And we need to be able to recognize it. In fact, I'd like to show you just a a short video about these modern day false teachers. If we could maybe drop the lights a little bit and then play that video.
2: They are some of the most popular and flashy TV evangelists in the country. These men appear to have made a lot of money, and they travel, well, like kings.
1: There ought not
2: be any poor among you. They're among the most popular televangelists in America.
1: I just need more. I just need more.
2: And they're wealthy beyond imagination.
1: One of my chandeliers costs more than most people's house. I got 22 chandeliers in the house.
2: They live in huge mansions drive fancy cars, and forget about Flying Coach. They own some of the best private jets money can buy. I got an intercontinental plane. Pastor Jesse DePlantis zips around in this Dassault Falcon 50 jet paid for by his church. Here he is boarding the plane with his wife for a short one-hour flight from Fort Worth, Texas to his home outside New Orleans. Estimated round-trip cost, $14,000. If he flew commercial, it would be as low as 180 bucks. My congregation is the world. I need the plane. He says his jet allows him to better spread his message around the world. And it sure has taken him to some pretty nice places. 16 times to Hawaii alone since 2006.
1: I really believe that if Jesus was physically on the earth today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey.
2: DePlantis now wants an upgrade to this $54 $54 million Dassault 7X that comes with lavish interiors. Only the wealthiest people in the world can afford such luxury.
1: So for you, that don't think I should have that plane? God told me to have that plane. Are
2: you seeing this? I hope so. You bought it. Very few people can beat Kenneth Copeland. He even has his own airport next to his lovely mansion in Newark, Texas. Copeland actually has two private jets, a $20 million Citation 10 and a Gulfstream 5 jet that he recently bought from movie director Tyler Perry. He's flown his jets to his vacation ski resort in Steamboat Springs, Colorado at least 143 times since 2000. So why not fly coach? Who better to explain his reasoning than to that other high-flying preacher, his good buddy Jesse DePlantis.
0: This dope-filled world, right? Get in an air, get in a long tube with a bunch of demons, right? That's exactly. And that. it's, it's deadly.
2: We caught up with Reverend Copeland in Branson, Missouri. You said that you don't like to fly commercial because you don't want to get into a tube with a bunch of demons. Do you really believe that human beings are demons? No, I do not. And don't you ever say I did. If I flew commercial. I'd have to stop 65% of what I'm doing. How much money did you pay for Tyler Perry's Gulfstream jet, for example? Well, for example, that's really none of your business, but... Isn't it the business of your donors? Listen, he made that airplane so cheap for me, I couldn't help but buy it.
1: Folks, the prosperity gospel is a lie that originates in sinful man. We cannot hear people using... Biblical words and quoting verses out of context and say that must be true. That must be the Bible. We have to be able to hold these things up to the light and evaluate them. If the prosperity gospel were from God, we would expect that he would reveal this to us in his word. But in fact, if we study the Bible, we'll find that the exact opposite is usually what happens in the Christian life. In Matthew 8:20, Jesus says, "Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head." Folks, if the son of God did not have a home and the creatures of the earth have a home, we should not expect that we're going to have the greatest home in the world if we just trust in Christ. If we submit our lives to Christ, we may lose what wealth we have. In fact, in some countries, you may be thrown into jail for becoming a Christian. If you follow Christ's call in your life to enter the ministry full-time, you'll probably make less money than you would have if you applied your skills in the corporate world. But Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy And where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Folks, God may allow you to be the steward of a great many resources in this life. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But he doesn't promise that the size of your bank account or your physical health are tied directly to your level of faith or obedience. This is a hollow and deceptive worldview that originates in man and not in God. Paul also warns the Colossians not to be taken captive by human wisdom because it's limited to created things. Now this point will take a little bit of explanation, I'll admit. Paul says that human wisdom is according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, as you read that, you may be asking, what exactly is Paul talking about here? And I'll admit I labored over this myself for hours this week. Scholars have differed over how to interpret this phrase because it's peculiar in the Greek, and they generally fall into three different camps. The first is the elemental spirits are the fundamental components of the universe, which would have been largely considered to be air, earth, fire, and water. Basically, the stuff that everything that is created is made up of. That's what he's talking about here. Or, number two, the elemental spirits are the elementary principles of a particular area of study, like your ABCs are to language, or like basic history would be to the full sum of all history. The rudimentary level of a much deeper topic. Or number three, the elemental spirits could be spiritual beings. There are different people who believe any one or multiples of these three options. Without having the time to discuss the merits of each and every possibility, I believe that it's most likely that Paul here is referring to the fundamental components of the universe, the very stuff that all that God has created is made up of. He claims that human wisdom is concerned with the things that have been created rather than with the Creator Himself. People are concerned only with what they can see rather than the eternal realities that are unseen. They worship and serve the creation rather than the creator, which Paul addresses in Romans chapter 1. In many cases, the fundamental components of the universe were the very things that people worshipped in Paul's day. So we see a little bit of that third view anyway, the fact that people worship the sun and the earth and various celestial bodies. And to bring this down to earth, literally for us, I believe our worldview gets skewed whenever we become fixated on the things that we can see and we ignore the spiritual realities that surround us. We can become obsessed with acquiring money, When we forget that one day this earth is going to pass away and only God, His Word, and the souls of men will last, we can become overly concerned with how we look or how people perceive us when we forget that God has given us our bodies as a stewardship to use for His glory. We weren't created to draw attention to ourselves, but to draw attention to Him. We can become focused on purely social causes like feeding the poor, building homes for the homeless, and saving the environment when we forget that the greatest need for every human being is to be saved from the wrath of God. Now please understand me, folks. There are so many good and worthy causes that we can get involved with on this planet today. And I would imagine that many in this room have gotten involved in different causes. Try to raise money for a cure... Maybe we have somebody who's been affected by a disease and we're trying to help them fight it. We try to provide good, clean water for people who don't have access to it. These are all good things, folks. But we've absorbed an unhealthy worldview if these good causes distract us from the greatest cause, bringing the gospel to the nations. Every single human being is destined for the wrath of God because God is holy and he can't tolerate our sin in his presence. The gospel is the good news that God has provided a way for us to be made right with him. You see, If we repent from our own worldview and believe that Jesus has lived a perfect life and died a sinless death in our place, God will clothe us in Christ's righteousness and he will look at us and say that we are righteous in the merits of what Christ has done in our place. The gospel shapes our worldview because Jesus is now everything to us. He's everything. And that's really the fourth and final reason why Paul warns the Colossians not to be taken captive by human wisdom because it doesn't come from Christ. Again, we can't know for certain what the false teachers in Paul's day were teaching, but it's clear by the central theme of this letter that their teaching diminished or downplayed the work of Christ. You know, our discussion in growth group this past week was especially edifying in this area. I love this question. I love getting bogged down in this question. How important is Christ to us? How central is Christ to what we believe, to how we live each day, to how we view our job, to how we view our relationships, to how we view our ministry, to how we view our life? How important really is Jesus Christ? the answer is that he's everything. Scholar Doug Moo put it this way, Christ is the one in whom God exclusively is to be found, the one through whom the world was created and through whom it is redeemed and the one who has decisively defeated all the hostile powers. Any teaching that in any way detracts from Christ's exclusive role is by definition both wrong and ineffective. See, folks, if we subscribe to any teaching or worldview that looks at Christ's work as insufficient for our salvation or our Christian living, we must run from that teaching. If someone tries to convince you to go ahead and accept Christ, go ahead and follow Christ, but do this as well in order to be made right with God, folks, ignore them. Christ is all-important and all-sufficient and we are absolutely complete in him. But in case you're not convinced why our lives should be Christ-centered or why our view of our finances or our relationships or our life goals should be shaped by Christ and his claim on our lives, let's finish by looking at three reasons why it matters that our worldview is formed by Christ. Three quick reasons here. First... It matters because Christ is fully God in human form. Let's look back at verse 9 of chapter 2. Paul says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You know, we get the idea based on reading Colossians that the false teachers were denying at least one part of the doctrine of the hypostatic union. You say, what? It's warm in here. I can't stay awake through this kind of talk. Simply, all that means, the hypostatic union, is that Jesus was both fully God and fully man, a union of two natures together, what seems to be impossible to our human minds. While Jesus was one person, he fully maintained his godness while taking on a new nature, human nature, And we believe that while our limited minds cannot fully comprehend it, Jesus was at the same time both God and man, allowing him to bridge the gap between perfect God and sinful man and accomplish the greatest redemption ever imaginable. You see, folks, since he was God, Jesus was able to live a perfect life. He was able to perfectly fulfill every single one of the Old Testament commands. He never failed in any single one of them because he was God. And because he took on human flesh, and because he was 100% man at the same time, Jesus was able to bear the blame for the sins of every man in his own body as he was killed on the cross You see, folks, if Jesus was not fully God and fully man, then we are still fully dead in our sins. And yet Paul is warning of false teachers who are claiming that Jesus was either not really God or not really man. And this is not a minor point of heady theology. This strikes at the heart of the gospel and whether Jesus could actually take care of our sin problem. But Paul assures us in verse 9 that Jesus, and in Jesus, the entire fullness of deity, of God, dwells in his bodily form. He couldn't be more plain about it. Meaning this, if you've encountered Jesus, you have encountered God. And he uses the present tense for the verb dwells. Do you notice that? He didn't say, in Jesus dwelled the fullness of God in human form. He says, in Jesus dwells the fullness of God in human form. Meaning this, Jesus still has a body, folks. He is still fully God and fully man. And we will one day look on the bodily Jesus who suffered in our place when he returns for us and we will worship him face to face. Believers, we don't want to waste our time being captivated by a hollow, and deceptive worldview. Let's not get trapped in the idea that the world is all politics and everyone should just be labeled R or D. The most important thing is not getting this particular person in the White House or passing this specific law. We can waste a lot of our energies in life worrying about who's going to win an election. We can place a lot of false hope in frail men who we think are our saviors when we actually know the real savior who has already accomplished everything necessary to save people from their greatest need. Not lower taxes. Not climate change. But the wrath of God that rightly falls on men who have suppressed the truth about God and worshiped the things that God has created instead of the God who has created all things. Christ is 100% God, and He took on human flesh so that He could save the souls of men. Let's not become captivated by human wisdom that distracts us from offering Jesus Christ, our living hope, to the world. Why does it matter if human wisdom is not from Christ? Number two, because we are fulfilled in Christ alone. Look at the first part of verse 10. Paul says, and you have been filled in him. Now this is obviously a play on words if you're reading through this passage. You can see that Paul says Christ is, is fully God and human flesh and, and you've been filled in him. Filled with what, Paul? He doesn't mention an object here because he's not talking about a specific object like water or food. He's saying that when we place our faith in Jesus and we are in union with Christ, we no longer lack anything. We've been filled. Before we were empty and lacking in purpose, but now we have Christ. You know, folks, it's been said that every person has a God-shaped hole in his life. And though we may try to fill that hole with so many different kinds of things, we are never, ever satisfied until Christ fills that hole. And when he does, we find complete fulfillment in him. Christians, if Christ is the only one who can bring fulfillment to our lives, then we waste our time when we allow ourselves to be carried out captive by the pursuit of ultimate pleasure in our careers, in our jobs if we think that the next promotion will finally bring us the joy that we desire, we've allowed ourselves to be plundered as the spoils of Satan's war. we settled for far lesser pleasure than the greatest treasure of all, being satisfied by Christ. Living for Christ and obeying his will brings fulfillment that a job could never, ever bring. We delude ourselves if we think that a brand could satisfy us, right? I'm a techie guy. I enjoy technology and things. But no number of Apple devices are going to satisfy me. No devotion to Herbalife is going to satisfy you. From my point of view, I don't know how the attraction was there, but... No degree from a prestigious university will fill the void in our souls. Only Jesus Christ can fill the void that we all have. If you have mapped out every step of your life for the next 10 years, or 10 months, or 10 days, and that map doesn't center around how does this plan involve my work for Christ's kingdom? you've been captivated by a worldview that is hollow and it's deceiving you into thinking that you'll be satisfied apart from fulfilling God's mission for your life. You see, it matters that human wisdom is not from Christ because Christ is fully God in human form because we're fulfilled in Christ alone and finally, because Christ is head over every created thing. Look once more with me at verse 10. And you have been filled in him, him who is the head of all rule and authority. You see it's possible that the false teachers in Colossae are are lifting up the spiritual beings that they believe dwell in the fundamental components of the world, the physical elements like the earth, the wind, the fire, the water. Paul is making it clear that Christ is over all things because he created them. Remember, we saw in chapter 1 that apart from Christ, nothing would have been created. And in fact, everything and everyone ultimately owes its existence to Jesus Christ and exists to display his power and glory. Folks, we live to display to all the preeminence and authority of Christ over all. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. So any mindset that we adopt that places anything in authority over Christ in our lives is harmful and takes us captive from our purpose for existence. You know, if we give a boyfriend or a girlfriend a higher place in our lives than Christ, then we've been taken captive. We won't be living for God's glory as long as we treat our relationships as more important than Christ we allow our love for a hobby like collecting things or playing sports to take up a higher throne in our lives than the place that we give to Jesus Christ, then we've been carried off captive. We need to forsake our ungodly worldview and replace it with one where Christ rules over all. And if we have a large amount of time to spend on Facebook, but not enough time to read our Bibles and to pray... Then we need to step back and realize that we've adopted a worldview that doesn't see Christ as supreme overall. Now, I don't know who said it originally, but it's absolutely true. God gave us Facebook and Twitter to show us that we have plenty of time to read our Bibles and pray. (laughs) Don't be carried away captive by hollow, deceitful human wisdom. Instead, entrust your mind to the Savior and guard it from every worldview that contradicts the truth revealed by Christ in his word. What hollow philosophy are you fighting today? What deceitful worldview are you combating with the truth of God's word? If you say none, then folks, you are combating them. You just don't know it. You're oblivious to the true realities of what's going on around you. Every show you watch, every person that you talk to, every perception of reality is given through a lens of how you view the world. So, how are you fighting? I want to challenge us to take up the word and prayer and join in the fight this morning and this week. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks most of all for Jesus, the source and the subject of this text, the purpose for this letter, and the purpose for our lives. Jesus has given us everything and we owe everything to him. And I pray for your help. I pray for your help for me and for this church that we would not be carried off captive by the philosophies of this world, by human wisdom, by worldviews that contradict the truth that you revealed to us in your word. Oh God, help us to be rooted and grounded in the truth. We'll not hold on to those things, but we'll let them go and embrace the truth of your word. Let it be said of us that Christ was our passion when we passed from this earth. Not things that sounded like Christ, but Christ himself. Father, help us in this regard. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.